Father, we do thank you for another beautiful day of life. We thank you for the warm air, the bright sky, the earth coming into bloom. We thank you for the way that you renew and revive and for the visible demonstration and anticipation of when you make all things new. And when Christ returns and there will be a melting away of the elements as with an intense heat and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the tabernacle of God will descend and you will dwell with your people on earth, never to leave again. And in that time, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because all of those former things will have passed away. There will be no sea, for there will be no chaos, no evil emerging from the waves. There will be no need of sun, because Christ and God will be illumining that new creation. And there your people will finally dwell in your presence forever and forever, for we will have been cleansed of our sins and placed in new bodies. The enemy will have been removed and all things will be finally what you intend them to be. Father, we long for that day. Keep us faithful until that time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last year, my son and I watched an ESPN documentary called The Last Dance, which was about the Chicago Bulls from the time that Michael Jordan arrived in 1984 until the dynasty dissolved in 1998. And during that time, they won eight NBA championships, including two three-peats. And it was amazing to be reminded of how amazing Michael Jordan was. It was interesting to see the team dynamics between him and Scottie Pippen and Steve Kerr and the others. But it was discouraging to find out the reason that tremendous team, maybe the greatest in NBA history, dissolved was because the general manager, Jerry Krause, was in conflict with the coach, Phil Jackson. And that internal conflict killed the greatest team in NBA basketball. And conflict can kill the greatest of teams. Uh, we in Dallas can lament that. We remember when there was back-to-back -back Super Bowl championships in 92-93. And then on March 21st, Jerry Jones said to a group of sports reporters at a bar that any one of 500 coaches could have won the Super Bowl with the team of players they had. And eight days later, Jimmy Johnson resigned. And then we entered into that long, dry season <laughs> that many of y'all remember and lament that it wasn't the team, it wasn't the opponents that overcame them. It was internal conflict that destroyed another great team. And of course, that's not just true in athletics. Internal conflict can ruin businesses. It can lose battles. It can destroy marriages. It can separate families. And it can split churches. And it can bring shame to the name of our God, and it can hinder the work of Christ in the community. Internal dissension is a destructive force that we have to take seriously to avoid and to address as it occurs, which is Paul's message for us in Philippians 4, 1-3. His message is going to be once again to remain steadfast, to stand firm, but to do so, we have to be united in Christ. We stand firm together or we fall separately. So Paul in these short three verses is going to exhort us once again to stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord then to exhort us to live in harmony in the Lord, and then to encourage us as a community to be peacemakers for the Lord, to maintain peace in our midst. So look with me, if you would, at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, now, whenever we see a therefore, we want to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? 
And in this case, it's an inference going back to the end of chapter 3 where Paul told us that we are citizens of heaven. That we are awaiting the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes, we will be transformed by His omnipotent power. And in light of our identity as citizens, in light of our hope, the coming of Christ, in light of our expectation of transformation, therefore, this is how we live today in light of that future reality. Namely, Stand firm. Be steadfast. Be unyielding, immovable, resolute. Don't let external pressures push you away from the gospel. Don't let worldly temptations lure you away from the church of Christ. Don't let, as we're going to see, internal dissensions discourage you to the point where you separate and scatter don't yield, don't compromise, don't concede, be unrelenting, be unyielding, be immovable, stand firm. And whatever analogy helps you think of this, uh, if you're his history buffs, you might think of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae who for three days held off the much larger Persian force of Artaxerxes and would not yield the pass until betrayal actually led to their defeat. Or maybe it's the 200 men at the Alamo with Travis and Bowie and... Uh, who was the other one? Davy Crockett, who would not yield to Santa Anna. Uh, or if you like fiction, I was recommending someone uh, Watership Down, and here was Bigwig the Rabbit, who would not yield the warrant to Colonel Woundwort. Or maybe it's uh, Reap a Cheap in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That as for him, when the Dawn Treader quit sailing east, he would get in his little boat, his coracle, and paddle until he could paddle no more, and then he would swim as far as he could go, and if he still had not reached Aslan's land, then he would submerge with his nose pointed towards the sunrise. But he was resolute. Whatever the rest of the crew wanted to do as they were thinking about turning back, he was set. His course was fixed. He was tied to the mast. His feet were taped to the pedals. He was committed. And where to be as well. And when he says in this way, this is likely referring again back to 2021 of chapter 3, because of your identity as citizens of heaven, be unyielding for heaven. Because of your hope of the return of Jesus Christ, be found faithful when he returns. Because of your expectation of transformation at the resurrection, don't concede, don't compromise, don't make bad barters, don't trade what awaits you for relief from pressures of society around us now. And notice Paul's beautiful heart for his church. First of all, he calls them my brethren. Now, he uses this term actually eight times in the book of Philippians. It's the most common form of address in the New Testament for a Christian. Isn't a Christian, isn't a follower of the way, isn't a disciple. It's brother or brothers and sisters or brethren. And Paul says, you're my family. And again, that's not just rhetorical language. That's not just an endearment. That's true. For those of us who have God as our Father, we have other Christians as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are indeed family. And so Paul says, I identify you, I'm proud to claim you as such. And not only are you family, because we all have family members that are difficult to love, Paul says, you're my beloved family. In fact, he repeats it twice, beloved. And then he makes it even more intense and personal, my beloved. You're my brothers and sisters, and I'm appealing to you. I love you, and I'm appealing to you. And then look what he says. 
whom I long to see. This is actually a single word in the Greek, and it means to earnestly desire or long for something or someone. Uh, if you've ever been deployed or assigned far from family, and you found yourself just yearning for a loved one, um, if you've been in a long-distance relationship and you talked for hours in the evening or you would stare at photos on your phone or you would tuck messages as to remind yourself of your loved one as you were away and your heart longed to be home, and Paul says, I'm here languishing in a Roman prison and I would long to be with you. I earnestly desire to be with you. And then on top of that, he adds two more additional endearments. My joy which again, coming from their spiritual father, Paul, who had led many of them to Christ, who had been the first founding pastor of the church, and my crown. Now, we use the phrase today, my pride and joy. You know, when we tuck the kids in at night, as we said our prayers, the last thing I would say to them before closing the door is, Daddy loves you and I'm very proud of you. Because I always wanted them to go as the last thing they heard from me every night was that they had unconditional love and acceptance and pride from their father. And that's what Paul says. You're my brethren. I love you. I long for you. I rejoice in you. I'm proud of you. Stand firm. Don't yield. Don't wander. Don't compromise. Don't concede. Don't give up. Don't surrender. Stand firm. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians using some of the same language. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the way Paul felt about his church? It wasn't you're my responsibility. You were on my to-do list this week to write you another message before I got to the next church. There was such a close connection between pastor and congregation. There was such a deep affiliation between sheep and shepherd. There was such a tight community at all levels, whether the people up front or the people in the pew. And this is what a church ought to be. That we're family. That loves one another. And when we're absent, for whatever reason, we long for one another. We're proud of each other. We rejoice in one another. When we're concerned about one's estate, we write, we call, we text, we encourage this is what we're called to be. Do you remember in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was going to Jerusalem where he was going to be arrested and imprisoned and he met with the uh, elders of Ephesus and as he gave them that last charge to stand firm for the flock, to guard them against the wolves that were coming and then it says as they departed that they hung around his neck and wept. <laughs> they loved him because that's what a church family is supposed to be because we are a family. Now, Paul has already given this exhortation at the beginning of his letter. Lyndall read for us Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, same word, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And why was he exhorting them to be unified and aligned and single-minded and standing firm and being steadfast? Because at the beginning of the book, he didn't want them to be alarmed by their opponents. A sign of destruction for them, they were opposing Christ, Christ's enemies, but of salvation for you because they were suffering for Christ, Christ's allies, and that too from God, God is sovereign over all. So Paul says, 
When there are external pressures and persecutions, whether from government or from our peers or from the culture at large, that can make us want to give ground. If I'm just a little bit quieter then, if I'm just a little bit less bold here, if I just keep my mouth shut now, if I just sign this, go along with this. I mean, to be honest, uh, have any of y'all found a little bit more reservation in the last 18 months about wearing a Christian t-shirt or boldly proclaiming Christ in some way? I have. There's been a couple of times that I reached for one of my Christian shirts and I wonder, is that going to be received in this context? Not that I'm fearful, but I'm sensitive because now you just can't know that that's going to be well received and it might be opposed and it might stigmatize us. So Paul says, when the pressures are coming without, y'all be unified because I need you to stand for them together. But now at the end of the book, there's something worse than external pressure and that's internal conflict and division. That if there's a crack in the foundation, the whole edifice can come down. So Paul goes on to exhort them to live in harmony in the Lord. And specifically, he addresses two individuals, Yodia and Syntyche. Now, we know that these are female names, both because of the grammatical gender, and in verse 3 he says these women. And these were common names. They appear on a number of ancient inscriptions. So these were two ladies in the church, and that's all we know other than they were in conflict. And Epaphroditus, when he visited Paul in Rome in prison, he told them about this conflict, and Paul was concerned enough about it not to write the letter to the Philippians and then a private note to Yodi and Syntyche, but to include this in the letter. And God the Holy Spirit, when he inspired Scripture, let this personal exhortation remain for our benefit. So imagine that you're in Philippi, and again, this might have been about the size of the Philippian church. We might actually be larger than the church at Philippi at the time. And earlier, as this is being read aloud, because the letter would have arrived, someone would have been reading it, there would have been communal reading, and earlier they would have heard the names Timothy and Epaphroditus being held up as examples of model Christians. And now Paul mentions two other names, Yodia, Syntyche. And you can see the eyes perk up. People kind of look at them. And you can imagine their ears perk up. But it's not a compliment. It's an exhortation that is really a reproach and a reprimand. Live in harmony. In fact, in the original, it actually says this, Yodia, I urge, and Syntyche, I urge. He mentions both of them. He front loads their names. He gives each of them an urging because Paul's not taking sides. He says, both of you are engaged in this conflict and both of you need to resolve this. And I'm calling out both of you publicly in the context of all your assembled brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is violating a tremendous managerial taboo. If you've even read the five-minute manager, five-minute or five-second, five-minute manager, and you always praise in public and you rebuke in private, Paul didn't do that because this is concerning to him. And as we're going to see, if they were unable to resolve it, then he's going to call upon their brothers and sisters to help them. Now, live in harmony. Harmony is when you have a chord, three or more notes, that are played simultaneously in a euphonous way. So it sounds nice. So it's not a monophony. It's not just everybody singing the same note at the same time you have at least three notes that are played simultaneously in a way that, that sounds good. 
that's resonant. There's concord there versus it being conflicting or discord or cacophony. But the word actually means being single-minded, that you have your differences, maybe you even have your disagreements, but when it comes to the gospel and more important matters, y'all need to be single-minded. You need to be of one heart when it comes to the gospel. And this is actually a common call of Paul. He says to the Romans, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. He says again at the end of Romans, Now may God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the Corinthians, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says again in 2 Corinthians, be like-minded and live in peace. He said early in Philippians 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We differ from one another. We're distinct. At times we disagree with one another, and that can be okay. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the church, we have to be like-minded. We have to be same-spirited. We have to be on the same team. You can bicker in the locker room, but when we hit the field, we are one team with one purpose, and we're going to work together. Off work, there may be differences of opinion, but when we show up at work, we're going to be like-minded because we're same team pulling in the same direction for the same cause. Uh, you can go do your solo work on the side, but when you come together as a band or an orchestra or a choir, you better be in tune with each other because we're called to something higher and we have to align ourselves in this instance. And so Paul is calling them to that. And in every time where he calls them to be like-minded, it's in the context of cautioning them against pride and selfishness because pride divides and selfishness separates. Here's what the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said. Pride is the greatest master of disorder in the world. It is the great agitator in the soul of man in families, in towns, in cities, and in all societies. Pride is the ringleader of all the riots, divisions, and disturbances among us. Isn't that a great line? Pride is the ringleader of all the riots, the divisions, and the disturbances among us. The book of Proverbs says, by pride comes nothing but strife. If you have pride, you will have strife. Because these two egos aren't going to accommodate each other. One of, them's, one of them or both of them is going to get an ego cramp, and now you're going to get a conflict. And so the Bible calls us to humility because the Bible calls us to, hum, to, uh, to unity. And if you're King Saul, and here comes King David, who defeated the giant and is leading your armies to victory... But if the crowds dare say Saul slew his thousands, but David his ten thousands, Saul is willing to seek to kill his son-in-law and to make himself an enemy of God and his anointed. Because pride will do that. Pride will separate uh, Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson, uh, Steve Rogers, Tony Stark. I mean, name the people. You put two big egos in a close proximity and there's going to be conflict and division. So Paul calls us to humility. 
And then he reminds them that he calls them to this in the Lord. Both of y'all are Christians. Both of y'all serve the same Lord. Both of y'all belong to the same family. And so for the sake of the Lord, I'm calling on you publicly. Be in harmony. Be single-minded. Set aside your differences for the good of the church and the cause of Christ. But sometimes we need help doing that. So Paul goes on to say, the rest of them, be peacemakers for the gospel. In verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, and we don't know who this individual is, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, and we know nothing about him, also, and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So apparently, Judea and Syntyche were unable or unwilling to resolve their conflict, but it had to be resolved because there were bigger issues at stake than their agendas and their egos. So Paul says, okay, true companion, Clement, the rest of you, help these ladies settle their issue. So in 1952, uh, the United Steelworkers of America got in conflict with United Steel and then also nine other steelmakers. And there was a threatened strike. President Truman nationalized the steel companies. And then they sued the president and the Supreme Court ruled that he had overreached himself. And then there indeed was a strike. And this went on until the largest American munitions factory shut down because of lack of steel. And the very next day, President Truman called in the chief representatives of both sides and said, you're going to settle this now, or I'm going to say things and do things that you won't like tomorrow. And he put them in the cabinet room, stationed a Marine at the door, and said, you're not leaving this room until this is resolved. The meeting occurred at 10. The issue was resolved at 3.30. Now, why did he take those steps at that time? Because the Korean conflict was going on. And so this isn't just a matter of benefits and profits. This isn't just a owner and union issue. You shut down our munitions factory in the middle of a war and I'm calling you both into the Oval Office and I'm locking you in a room and you ain't leaving until we fix this because we're in conflict and there are higher issues at stake than your individual agendas and egos. And that's what Paul does here. There are bigger issues at stake in church conflicts than individuals and their hurt feelings or their agendas because Christ's reputation is at stake. Because the welfare of God's family is at stake. Because our witness in the community is at stake. And God says, settle it. Resolve this. And then he gives three descriptions that remind us how we are all in the same struggle and labor and engagement to help us do this. Look, first of all, he says that Christians share the same struggle in the cause of the gospel. We're all struggling together in the same cause. We're all trying to promote the gospel in our communities. We're, both we're all trying to live godly lives and help others do the same. We're trying to witness those that don't know Jesus Christ. And it's labor. And it's a struggle. And we're struggling together. And so one, we have to unite. But that other person that you're angry with, they're a fellow struggler. And so give them some respect. Cut them some slack. The image that came to mind when I was thinking about this was uh, when you see a hurricane about to come in and the whole community rallies together 
and they're trying to build the, sound bar the sandbag barriers or to get things ready. And whatever was causing conflict between neighbors about where the fence line lay or what the dog was doing at night, none of that matters now because the waters are coming. And we have to struggle together in a common cause. Or if there's a fire and whatever else was going on, everybody get out and gets out there with towels and shirts and water and whatever we can do because there's a common thread, a common cause that takes priority over this. So we're struggling together. We have to struggle together. And whoever that person is that's irritating you, they're a fellow struggler. Next, Paul says that we are fellow workers for the gospel. We are working together. This is one of Paul's favorite terms. Listen to some of his usages. Romans, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Corinthians, we are God's fellow workers. 2 Corinthians, Titus, my fellow worker. Philippians, Epaphroditus, our fellow worker. He says in Colossians, Aristarchus, Barnabas, Mark, Jesus, Justice, fellow workers. 2 Thessalonians, Timothy, our fellow worker. To Philemon, fellow worker. Mark, Aristotic, Damas, Luce, fellow workers. We support the strangers who come into our church to be supported for gospel work because they're fellow workers. We're collaborators for the gospel. We are co-laborers for Christ. And so we have to work together. We have to help one another. And there are times that Christians get in conflict. There are times that Christian leaders get in conflict. There are times that leaders between different churches come in conflict. And we have to remind ourselves of, but that is a fellow labor in the same cause. And the labor is more important than the disagreement. That is a collaborator for Christ and the cause of Christ. And that's worthy of my respect. That's worthy of my treating him with some dignity. That's worthy of me overcoming my personal grievances because it's the work that matters. So Paul says, we have to set aside our disagreements because we're co-laborers for Christ. Thirdly, he reminds us that all of our names are written in the book of life. Now, this is a biblical phrase used of the record of the redeemed whom God is going to call to himself someday into his presence. It's first mentioned by Moses on Mount Sinai. After the golden idol, Moses says, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out from your book which you have written. David says in Psalm 69, 28, may they, the wicked, be blotted out of the book of life. Daniel, everyone who is found in the book of life will be rescued. Revelation 20, the book of life will be opened. Revelation 20:15, if anyone's name is not in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you know Christ is your Savior, then we are going to spend eternity together. We'll be with each other forever. We are eternal companions in the company of Christ if we're Christians. And so Paul reminds them as he calls them to reconcile and to help each other reconcile, view each other rightly. We're struggling in the same cause. We're laboring in the same work. We're co-heirs with Christ for eternity. Set aside your conflict. Be reconciled, live in harmony. And if you see people who can't or won't, help them. Help them. So now we wanna make some observations, look at some principles, and then some practical applications 
of how do we live this out. First of all, looking at our text, Christians must stand firm together as church communities in the Lord. This is the plural command. Now, it has an individual application, but Paul isn't speaking to us as individuals. He's speaking to the Philippians as a church, to Dina as a church. Y'all, my beloved brethren, stand firm together. Because that's how we stand firm, is together. That when we're separated, when we're isolated, it's easier to waver and to fall away. So if you see someone weakening and wavering, strengthen them up, bolster them up. If you begin to wander away and isolate, realize that you're setting yourself up to slip away and fall away. We stand together or we fall together. Or as the Patriot used to say, either we stand together now or we will most certainly hang separately. We have to stand together, which means that we must be single-minded in the Lord if we're going to stand firm for the Lord. We're very different people and we're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to have disagreements we're going to step on each other's toes, but when it comes to Christ and the gospel and what it means to be a church and a common witness for our community, we're single-minded there. Uh, siblings may squabble until the next door neighbor begins to bully them, and then they're best friends and you stand up for your little brother because we're family. So we set aside minor differences and disagreements for the cause of Christ. Thirdly, Christians are susceptible and prone to conflicts. And there ain't no denying this. <laughs> we are a persnickety lot, we Christians. And we get our dander off over all kinds of things. The type of music played, who plays the music, the type of sermon preached, who preaches the sermon, how we serve communion, when we meet, how long we meet, where we meet, who gets to meet. We will get our feathers ruffled over anything because one, we're humans, we're sinners, we're selfish, we're proud, we're demanding, we're selfish, and we have to watch out for this because there is none of us, as close as we may be, that can't separate if we're not working hard at staying together. You can be as tight as a husband and wife and you have to work at staying one. You can be siblings born and raised in the same home and you have to work at getting along. You can be brothers that have known each other for a lifetime, but you've got to make sure you maintain that relationship. We are sinners, we are proud, we are selfish, which means we're going to conflict, and so we have to work at this. Fourthly, Christians must resolve their conflicts. We don't get to write one another off. God decides who He admits into His church, and we must embrace and welcome and love whomever He admits. It doesn't matter whether we were happy being the only child, we're not. It doesn't matter if we enjoyed not life better before the new siblings came along. They're here and they're siblings. You're going to share and love them. It was wonderful to be adopted. Maybe we didn't care when the parents adopted five, six, seven, eight more, but that was the parents' choice. They're our brothers and sisters now. We love them. We don't have a choice but to reconcile. Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, even if you were offering your sacrifices at the altar. You've come all the way from northern Israel. You've come down. You're there. You're finally able to make your sacrifice. And now you remember, I offended my brother and my sister. What does Jesus say to do? Leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled. Jesus cares more about your reconciliation than he does your sacrifice. We pray in the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our sins as 
We forgive those who have trespassed against us. They're linked. We don't have the right to refuse forgiveness to anyone. Forgiven people forgive. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians and Colossians, forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ. It doesn't matter if they ask forgiveness, we forgive them. It doesn't matter if they're still in the wrong, we forgive them. Because God forgave us when we were still in the wrong. We have to reconcile. And finally, Christians should help each other resolve their conflicts. There's times that husbands and wives just don't communicate well, and we need a third party to help us understand each other better. There's times that kids can't settle their conflict, and an adult has to come in and help them settle it. There are times that Christians can't or won't resolve their conflict, and the brothers and sisters have to help them do that. Because unresolved conflicts aren't options in the body of Christ. What are some principles for remaining steadfast and united in Christ? First of all, the best way to resolve conflict is to avoid conflict. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The images of a dam or a dike, and you pull out this one brick, this chink, and what happens? You're overwhelmed. You let out the gusher. And you may have been a kid one time, just, I'm just going to take this one little thing, and the whole thing came tumbling down on you. So Proverbs says, don't even start a conflict, because you may not be able to stop it. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your opinion to yourself. Don't criticize out loud. Don't make that slanderous, gossipy comment. Don't tweet. Don't post. Don't text. Don't whatever. The best way to resolve a conflict is not to start a conflict. Proverbs 18, 19 says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. There can be one cross word, one bad conversation, one misdeed that can ruin a relationship that was decades in the making. We just need to be really cautious about conflict. They're dangerous. Next, when provocations occur, try to overlook them. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's transgression makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Someone says, Hey, did you hear what that person said about you? Well, I did now, but I don't have to reciprocate. I don't have to respond. I don't have to retaliate. I can just absorb that. Someone can be spiteful, rude, snub me, and I don't have to give back evil for evil. I can just absorb that. And so we should be magnanimously overlooking minor offenses or even major offenses because, again, conflict is dangerous once it actually occurs. Thirdly, when conflicts occur, address and resolve them quickly. The Bible says, forgive and do not go to bed angry because if we do, if we let that anger become resentment, become bitterness, if that wound gets infected and begins to fester, what do we give the devil? An opportunity. The longer you let that grievance fester in your mind and heart, the more deadly and dangerous it becomes. So we have to resolve quickly. If we found out that we, if we realize we wronged someone, go and ask forgiveness. If you realize you're harboring a grudge, if you're taking care of that chip on your shoulder, forgive them. Ask God to do a miraculous word in your heart. Because the longer we let it sit there, the more it's going to fester and canker into something poisonous. 
Next, until the conflict is resolved, do not fuel it or spread it. Proverbs 16.28 says, A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Listen to this from Proverbs 6. There are six things which the Lord hates. That's a strong word, isn't it? That God Almighty hates something. So what does God hate so we can avoid it? Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. That's another strong word. So what does God abominate? What does God hate so that we don't do that? Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, deception, hands that shed innocent blood, violence, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and what's the seventh final one, the crescendo? And one who spreads strife among brothers. If you hear someone say something negative of another, you don't have to tell them that. You don't have to share that. If you see something ugly or nasty or wrong, you don't have to pass that on. If you're wounded, you don't have to start recruiting allies to your side. Because that's what we do, don't we? Someone did something bad to me. Something said someone ne negative about me. So I tell my friends, because what am I really doing? I'm recruiting allies to my side. I'm already beginning to build up my militia to go to war. Go one-on-one, -on -one, face to face, in private, try to resolve it if you can't bring someone else involved. But whatever you do, don't pour gas on that fire. Whatever you do, don't pour salt on that wound. Whatever you do, don't begin to turn a one-on-one -on -one conflict into a splitting church issue where you're either on my side or their side, but you can't be both. Next, if you can't resolve the conflict, seek Christian mediation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It is like our Father when we help people reconcile, because God is a reconciler, even at great cost to Himself, right? If you can't resolve the issue, or if the other party won't, get help from the appropriate person or from the elders. Finally, or uh, next to last, when resolving conflicts, focus, your issue, focus on your issues and not the others. Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's not denying that there's something in both parties. There's an issue with both eyes. But from my perspective, how should I view my issue versus theirs? They've got this little speck, this little moat, this little small hair, and I got this log. I mean, it's a comical image, you know, sticking out this beam in my eye. And that's my issue. I can't change another person's heart. I can only address my own. And so focus on my issue, on my fault, on my sin. And if two people come in and say, hey, both of y'all are involved, what percentage of the blame do you think is the other person's versus you? And sometimes you get extravagant claims. 90% them, maybe 10% me. Okay, even if I grant that, you focus on your 10%. You focus on your 10%. And then you'll be better able to help them. Finally, we have to remember our identity and calling in Christ and be reconciled in the Lord for the cause of the gospel. We're involved in something bigger than us. 
we're part of something more important than our hurt feelings. We're part of a cause that has eternal implications. If we are a conflicted, dissenting, divided church, we discredit our testimony in this community. If we are angry and slanderous and gossiping, then we defame our God who is love. We represent someone and something much more significant than us. And we need to remember that and resolve our conflicts. So finally, making it even more personal. Are you wavering in your faith and stand for Christ? This morning's message would say stand firm. Don't yield. Don't concede. Don't be intimidated. Don't be distracted. Don't be tempted. Don't give up heaven for the sake of earth. Stand firm. Be resolute. Be unyielding. Are you trying to stand firm in Christ alone? You can't. Stand together. Link arms. Shield to shield. Guard your neighbor. Grab your buddy. Help him when he begins to fall, and he'll help you when he begins to fall. The proverb says that it is the fool who isolates himself. He who would destroy himself does so. We're not strong enough to stand alone. We're not intended to. We're a family. Are you in conflict with another believer? Go and be reconciled. Ask forgiveness. Pray for God to do a forgiving work in your heart. But don't let that canker grow. Don't nurse that grudge. Don't continue to foment that feud. Go be reconciled. Have you written off another believer? Good riddance. You may not be able to reconcile. Reconciliation takes two parties, but forgiveness can be unilateral. So I can't reconcile a relationship if the other party is still making themselves an enemy of me, but I can unilaterally forgive them. I must unilaterally forgive them. Christ commands me to. And finally, do you know believers in conflict? Help them. Um, you may not know them well enough to be able to be the one to mediate, but you can pray. Uh, you cannot spread a gossip or a slanderous comment. You cannot take sides. You can listen to both sides before you assume you know what's going on. You can support and encourage in other ways. And for some of us, maybe we're the one that God would use to go and be that peacemaker, to go and to help. We're a family. We have to live as such. We have to be steadfast and firm together. So John Calvin, the reformer, when he wrote his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536, um, it was an instant hit, and he became a famous man. And as he was being detoured through Geneva because there was battling between the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the King of France, Francis I, he detoured through and a gentleman by the name of Guillaume or William Farrell, the reformer of Geneva, heard that he was in town and said, stay and help me with the work. And John Calvin said, no, I'm going to go to Strasbourg and be a writer. And Farrell, being an opportunistic man, threatened him with the judgment of God if he, like Jonah, denied his call. And he intimidated Calvin into staying in Geneva. So Calvin linked arms with Pharaoh in the work, and they began to reform the church and to institute change. And the church fired them. They decided they really didn't want that much change that fast if it was going to come at that cost. And so they fired them 
and Calvin went up to Basel. And there he became a pastor of a French-speaking church. He married, he had a child, and things were very good for Calvin. And when Calvin and Farrell left, the Roman Catholic uh, Archbishop Sadoletto sent a letter to the city saying, we're so proud of you for kicking the bums out. Now's the time to come back to home sweet Rome. And they wrote these reasons why they should do so. And no one in Geneva was competent or capable enough to respond. So they wrote Calvin a letter. And they said, um, hope you're liking it up north. Uh, we have a letter. Would you mind writing our response? And you know what Calvin did to the group that fired him? He did. It was a compelling response. And in fact, it helped them realize we should not have fired this man. So they asked him to come back as pastor. And Calvin wrote in a letter, I would rather be crucified a thousand times than crawl back up on the cross of that church in Geneva. But then Pharaoh said, but that's God's church. And you could maybe do some real good there. So Calvin came back to the church that fired him. And on the first Sunday, he comes in the pulpit of St. Peter's in Geneva. Now, if you had been the fired pastor who had been wrong, who had been falsely accused, who had been slandered, and now you get back in front of a captive audience, what might you have been tempted to do? All right, me boyos, <laughs> buckle up. You know what he did? He started preaching again in the next verse from where he left off and just simply resumed the exposition of God's Word. Now, what was the message? He had grievances. He had hurt feelings. He didn't want to be there. All those relationships didn't instantly reconcile. But what was more important than any of those interpersonal conflicts? The church, the gospel, the Word. And he just magnanimously, magnanimously, that's a lot of syllables, magnanimously swallowed his pride, opened the Bible, and picked up where they left off. Because there were bigger fish to fry. And God used Calvin to create a model church that people came from around Europe to come and to sit at his feet and to say, how do we replicate this elsewhere? And God has given us that opportunity. We're a young church. We don't have generations of conflict behind us. We have the opportunity to do something really wonderful here. And God has been doing some really wonderful things among us, which God loves, which we've enjoyed, but which the devil hates and is intent on destroying. And he will divide us if he can. And we are prone to conflict because we are proud and selfish sinners, every last one of us. And so we have to be steadfast and firm together by being united and reconciled together because that's what God has called us to do. May God protect us. May God preserve us. May God unite us. May God do wondrous things in and through us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we're not good at relationships. <laughs> we are easily offended and quick to offend. We have oversensitive feelings and we are insensitive towards others. We are slow to ask forgiveness and slow to grant forgiveness. And so is it any wonder that our lives are filled with broken relationships and people that we've written off and maybe even some that we're still harboring grudges against, forgive us. 
you forgave us at the cost of your son, which obligates us to forgive others. You forgave us when we were unworthy. Grant us the grace to forgive others when we think that they're unworthy. Father, we are quick to notice flaws in others, slow to acknowledge our own. Would you help us to get the beam out of our eyes so that we can better get the motes out of others? We thank you for the love that you've bestowed thus far, but love's a fragile thing. So would you guard us, keep us, commit us, remind us who we are, what we're called to, that we might be steadfast, united together in Christ, for Christ, until Christ comes. Amen.